we're Phil and Jen, and I know we said we were wrapping up season three, but bonus. Bonus episode. <laughs> we were in El Salvador last week with some dear friends, and they've been working with the local community down there and their friends. For years. Yeah. And they're building a retreat center down there. So we were down there with them checking it out, dreaming about what it could look like to do some retreats Exploring down there. Exploring the, the lay of the land. I think that's how you would say it. The food, the town, the waves, the experience, getting to know the people. It was so fun. And it's just so fun to be with the Paulsons. And there's just some beautiful things happening down there. And we couldn't help ourselves. We had to share because it just fits too perfectly into the season and what we've been talking about, about making change. And so we had an opportunity to sit down with Mike Peterson. You want to tell us about him? Yes. Mike is a fascinating individual. Um, you're going to hear a lot from him in a moment, but we had the chance to sit down and I got to actually, um, I brought some microphones and we got to have like a full conversation. I got to interview Mike about the work that they're doing in El Zante in the town. And Mike is a, he is a unique, fascinating human being. So he is a, a surfer, small business owner from California that moved 18 years ago or bought some property in this town 18 years ago in El Zante in El Salvador. And then as he was there, they developed um, multiple nonprofits. He's the president of this nonprofit called Mission Sake um, that essentially cares for missionaries and NGO leaders in El Salvador um, who are doing work on the ground. Um, he and his wife care for those leaders through this nonprofit. And then he's also the director of a nonprofit called Bitcoin Beach. And this is the thing, this is the most fascinating story of how, like, it, it, it's almost like the accidental creation of a Bitcoin circular economy in this little town in El Salvador that turned into like a worldwide movement. And um, Mike was right at the center of it all. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, this is like the talk right now, right? Crypto, everything's crypto, this, crypto, that. So this conversation will help explain even what is it? What is cryptocurrency? What is Bitcoin? How are we going to see the world change as a result of it? Understanding it not as just a volatile um, novel investment, but actually as a future of currency and economy and um, a cool story of a community rallying around each other and seeing like great life and opportunity for everyone come out of it. And it's, it's just a, a fascinating, wild story that you've, you've got to hear firsthand from Mike. Yeah, I mean, we were so moved just seeing firsthand the ways that Bitcoin is transforming and empowering a community and bringing financial inclusion to everyone in the community and to the most marginalized. So, so interesting. I'm excited for you to hear this. And excited for you to come on a retreat with us in the in the hopefully near future. So we'll keep you posted. But for now, here's Mike. And I didn't plan on actually having this conversation now, which is kind of fun, unexpected. Yes. I sat down and wrote a bunch of questions out because um, I think it's unique for Jen and I. Um, We have a huge heart for the community. So she came down and did Enlace stuff. So I brought Caleb down and we went up into the mountains and did that. And then Jen brought Brady down with Jenny. 
Okay. And did that. And then Eric brought me here. But like coming in over the last few years, I came in right before the gala that got canceled. That was my first time in El Zante. And we had an interesting experience, but that was before any of it. Like you were using Bitcoin, but it, it was more like this investor. And so I, I'm, I'm just, so, so the season's called, put in seasons of our podcast. And uh -huh. this, this one's called, um, We Can Make Change. And the idea is both conversations about how people grow and change, because there's a lot of growth happening right now in the world. <laughs> I think COVID has catalyzed some things. Yeah. But also it's a conversation of um, like people that are making really beautiful change in the world. And so we've interviewed some really interesting people that have done some crazy stuff. And that's why I was really excited to talk to you and what's happening here. And there's all the layers of it. Um, but from the beginning, what, uh, how did you fall into this town? Because you're from San Diego and you've been here how long? So we bought a house here about 18 years ago. Um, we I came down here on a surf trip uh, with a buddy of mine. We had some some time, and so we were looking for where to go. Uh, El Salvador had the cheapest tickets at the time, and That's I, seriously, how you got here? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd been I'd already been to Nicaragua and Guatemala, but I was like, well, I haven't been to El Salvador, so. We uh, bought tickets. We didn't. We didn't like make any plans as far as where we were gonna stay. We just like showed up, rented a car, and started driving. We were totally turned around because we thought the um, the airport in in San Salvador is really not in San Salvador. I mean, as you know, it's like an hour outside. So we looked at the map of San Salvador and saw like uh, another airport, but it's like I think it's like a military airport. We right. thought that's where we were. And so we're like, man, it shows all these streets and all these things. And, and so, yeah, we, were, we got totally lost and we wound up in El Tunco and had an amazing time. And, and Where's El Tunco? So El Tunco is just maybe like 10 miles down the road from here. Okay. Um, and we kind of by Sunzal. It's yeah, okay, by yeah, the, yeah. The Sunzal break. And so that's where we surfed the most of the time our first trip. And right. just fell in love with the country and so called my wife and said we need to come back here and buy a place and so a month later we came back and, seriously that and, fast and, yeah and, and you we, bought this place we bought this place yeah and you that's 18 years ago yeah um so what how much time did you were you spending here in the beginning what like what happened so initially we would spend anywhere from like a few weeks to to a couple months um here we have a seasonal business in the u.s so we have a lot of time um during the winter and so we would come down here and it just mostly as a vacation home and as we spent more and more time here and started you know falling in love with the local community but yeah. also started getting to know a number of uh, people that were working with different NGOs or were missionaries here and um, kind of saw a lot of the needs that they you know the things they were struggling through the trauma they were going through and so we felt like we were in a unique position to kind of serve these people that were on the front lines and kind of serve them behind the scenes. And so you guys, you didn't set up to come do some big thing in this town. You just moved initially because there was a love for... Oh, we moved because there was warm water and good surf and, and yeah, we love the, the people, you know, the people here were just super friendly. And so, no, initially it was just, you know, this was a, a you know, dream that I think most surfers have of, of having a you know home in a place that has warm water year-round and good waves yeah yeah and then with your work with because you you ended up starting mission sake 
how, how long into the journey was that? So that was probably 10 years into the journey. Um, so we had, uh, you know, we started getting to know a lot of these people, like I mentioned earlier, that were um, living here, working in country and, and, you know, hearing some of the struggles they had. And, um, you know, a lot of them didn't have a lot of on-ground support. And so, yeah, we felt like, hey, there's people here doing amazing things. We don't feel called to any of, of these specific areas, but we can kind of support them and help them do, it a, do a better job and not face burnout and right. maybe be more impactful. So what kind of things were you doing to help them? So we have um, a couple vacation homes that we, we have so the people that are, you know, most of these people are living on support and so right. they don't have funds to go get away with their families and a lot of them are working in you know, really intense environments if they're running a children's home or working with women who have been victims of sex trafficking or working with gangs and so um, burnout was pretty common so we we have a couple of vacation homes that they can use free of charge um, for up to 10 nights a year and then we also started a conference uh, once a year to kind of pull together all these people that are working into the country help them um, develop relationships with each other, kind of combine efforts, establish best practices, and, and also yeah. just feel encouraged and, and supported. And then on a broader level, we, we try to bring in like counselors or, um, you know, have workshops for specific, um, you know, needs that they have and just try to be kind of the on-ground support team for all these different organizations. And this is in addition to your, your job, <laughs> your actual yeah, work. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't pay the bills. That is just kind of what we do here. We have a, um, a business in the U.S. That, that that's how we support ourselves. So we go back to the U.S. every summer yeah. and we do that. And so, so yeah, so everything else kind of came out of that. Part of our vision was the communities where we had the two vacation homes is we wanted to have an impact on the local community. Mm. And especially in El Zante, we had um, a local Jorge Valenzuela that's, that's working for us. And he had a real heart for specifically the youth. And so right. we were able to kind of just behind the scenes support him and his vision for El Zante. And so this is in addition to the other work you're doing. Yeah, yeah. This is, it was kind of a, a part of it, but, you know, kind of. How, more did, how did all that start here? Because the work here is incredible that you guys have been doing. Well, we, Jorge came on to, to work with us and we had kind of from the beginning said, hey, we want to be involved in the local community where we have these guest homes. So if you see any needs or opportunities, you know, let's, let's kind of push forward with it. And yeah. so he would come to us with different things. And so we're like, hey, you, you're the face of this. You know what's needed in the community. You know, you're the, the leader in this. We'll kind of support you, you know, as far as having time off to, to do all that work. I mean, that was kind of in, in it, we always made sure that was a priority. And then if there was resources needed to support these different things and, and obviously help, help them think through how to organize things. And as it grew bigger, you know, how to um, make sure that that, was done in kind of an orderly way or as orderly as it can be in this situation. <laughs> and what kind of things was so, he doing in the community? Uh, so he was doing like Bible study, like youth group with, uh, with the young people, but you know, also more like activities, like they would do like skate and surf and, yeah. and just spending time with them, kind of mentoring one-on-one. -on -one. A, a lot of them have their parents or, are working in the U.S. or in jail or you know, not around. and so. 
he was kind of like that mentor to them that they could kind of turn to um, when they didn't have anybody else and, and also just help them kind of start thinking about what their goals were in life and their path in life. And so um, it started really small and it just kept growing. And then, you know, down the road, we, we introduced the Bitcoin component to it. And, and How long ago did it, it start? So that part, Jorge had already been doing stuff in the community even before he started yeah, working with us. Yeah. And so um, I don't know, you know, it's hard to put like an official start date on it. But sure. as we started doing more community stuff here, maybe about five years ago, okay. um, involved with the, you know, that he kind of took the lead on. Yep. And then um, it was probably two and a half years ago that the, the Bitcoin component came into it. So, yeah, now it's called Bitcoin Beach. <laughs> How did that happen? So Bitcoin Beach is it's, it's not necessarily like the name for the whole project. It's, right. it's the kind of the, the name for the Bitcoin component of it. And we... Um, How did that all begin though? Because there's, there's like an investor. I've heard these rumors and these stories from different people, but... Yeah, we had um, somebody that runs another nonprofit um, came to me, knew that I was into Bitcoin and said, hey, we had somebody donate Bitcoin to us. How can we use this? And so I kind of helped this guy think through how they could utilize the Bitcoin and didn't really think anything else of it. And then yeah. I think it was probably three months later, I got a phone call from him and said, hey, do you want me to introduce you to this person that donated Bitcoin to us and see if they want to support the work you guys are doing in El Salvador? And I thought, Sure. I mean, yes. be, I was just, <laughs> I, I really didn't think that they would be interested in, in like supporting what we're doing just because it was very different than what this or, other organization was doing. But, and I didn't really know the whole backstory. And, but I was just kind of curious because I was in the Bitcoin space and right. it was just kind of fascinating to me that this guy was donated in Bitcoin. And so, long story short, we, um, Met. We thought we were going to meet with the donor, but it wasn't. The donor's like super secretive and, and oh. just wants to remain anonymous. So you've I think. never met with the donor? No. So just the, um, a representative of the donor. Whoa. So, uh, so here? We showed you up. met here? No, in, 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 uh, in the U.S. Okay. So we thought that we were going to be meeting with the donor and we showed up and, and you know, after a while realized like oh, this is just like a intermediary. Um, wow. And so, as the the advisor was kind of explaining to us the the donor's motivations and and what the donor wanted to see, um, I began to understand that it was more about using Bitcoin in real like transactional ways and taking advantage of um, just the fact that you don't need an intermediary and banks and and in this context in El Salvador, seeing how many people don't have bank accounts and both myself and then people we work with, just seeing how challenging it can be to even like move money as, as we've tried to buy cars or stuff like that. It's like a major hurdle. Just it's like you have the money, which you think would be the hard part, but then actually trying to get it down here is a whole nother uh, can of worms. And so also seeing kind of the people here living in poverty as they're receiving, you know, small bits of money from the U.S., seeing how much was siphoned away in fees and and how yeah. inconvenient it was for them. Um, it kind of got my mind spinning about how we could utilize Bitcoin here and integrate it in our existing um, programs. And so I came back to and the advisor said, hey, give us a proposal for what you guys want to do. And so 
uh, we came back with, hey, we'll try to start a Bitcoin circular economy here in El Salvador and um, used our existing programs to start injecting Bitcoin into the community and then use that as a tool to um, get them to start saving for the first time, get them to, you know, really start dreaming about what the future can hold. Um, and to be quite honest, I think initially I underappreciated the benefit of using Bitcoin in this. I, I was already interested in Bitcoin, but I almost saw like, oh, this is going to be kind of a headache because now we got to like get people to accept it. Extremely and complex. It's, yeah, it's this whole other thing. And so at first it seemed like, okay, this is, this is cool, but it's going to be, it's almost like we have to jump through these hoops. Right. But once we got into it and started using it, I realized it was actually the most important component because it really changed the way these young people thought about their futures, that we saw people saving for the first time in their lives. We saw them really starting to question like, what is money? And, and I think even have a better understanding than most Americans that, I mean, most Americans, even though they may make a lot of money, they don't really understand how it works. They don't understand um, you know, the, the value of saving for the future versus using it now. They don't right. understand inflation. There's, there's all these components that most people don't really think of because they're just too busy living their lives. And so we saw as we um, switched to using Bitcoin, it kind of forces people to wrestle with all these things and actually helps them make better decisions. Huh. So how did it practically work coming into the... Because you're coming into a... a I mean, there's, it's dirt roads. No, it's like, a, I don't, it's not rural, but it's kind of rural. It's a small yeah. town. Like, how did you make that shift into using it just practically, a, a digital cryptocurrency in a small town? So initially we were gonna start with the adults because it just seemed like, oh, this is kind of a you know, more serious thing. And so we held a workshop with, with you know, people my age and they kind of just looked at us with like glazed over eyes like oh yeah this this sounds super complicated and like why would we want to you know deal with this it was pretty much no interest wow um but then kind of as we were just our plan initially was to work it into our normal programs we were doing which is more with the youth and we sure. realized for the youth it was a totally different thing they're used to doing things on their phone they're used to right. doing everything like that so for them it was like oh this totally makes sense like now we have a currency that is easy to, to send as messages and everything else that we do and right. we don't have to deal with this antiquated you know paper like right. system and so a lot of points here um for them you just saw like they got it easier than I did as far as the the actual usage of it. Sure. And then once they started using it, then they became more interested in, okay, why does it have value and why does the value fluctuate and did how you exactly an does it work? For them? So not not initially. We there was a couple of wallets that we were using that and, already existed. Yeah, that already existed. And which which were good, which worked okay, but when we had issues, we didn't have any direct like contact with those people, and so it was. And you set up so. shops to receive it, as well as the ability to pay with it. Yeah, that was that was kind of the thing. You have to for people to value it, they have to have places where they can spend, spend it. it. Yeah. And so we would you know bring we'd onboard the the people through the programs first, and then we would bring on you know one first was one shop, and then. You know, other people were like, eh. but as they saw that shop getting more and more business right. and, and they started to wonder, OK, what, what is this? And so then we'd have them come to us like, OK, we, we're interested. Explain this to us. And so 
it's kind of been that, you know, slowly the yeah. shops would trickle in and then as more people are using it, more shops would want to come in. And when I came so, down the first time right before COVID, that's kind of where it was at. Yeah. People were I think using we only it. had like two or three shops at that yeah. time. Yeah. You had a Bitcoin ATM yeah. in town, but you don't, you didn't have a regular ATM and a couple of shops were using it and it was like a fascinating experiment. But then like something happened because I came down again in May and it was a very different situation. Yeah, so during um, COVID, we really expanded because there's really strict lockdowns here and people weren't allowed to work. Everybody was basically like required to stay in their homes. And unlike the US, you know, most people here don't have a month's worth of food in their cupboards and refrigerator. I mean, they pretty much live day to day. What they earn today, they buy their food tomorrow. And so, it was pretty quickly that people started to go hungry here. And so we kind of ramped up at that point and started distributing Bitcoin to the majority of the family. I'd say probably 90% of the families in the community we started sending Bitcoin to and we onboarded more stores. And, and that the people were, the only thing they were allowed to go out for was to buy groceries. So the stores were able to stay open. Most, in most countries, they shut down because nobody had any money, and so there was no reason for them to stay open. But here, people had Bitcoin to spend in addition to you know cash or other things they had from, from savings or from family in the U.S. And so um, most of the stores here were able to stay open. And during that time, the majority of their sales were definitely done in Bitcoin because that's what was circulating in the community. And, and so it also gave us the, the chance to expand much more rapidly than we would have otherwise. Um, right. You suddenly have a whole community using it. Yeah. Because anytime you're doing any type of development work, you have to be very careful not to distort the local economy, not to create dependence. There's, right. there's all of these things that you know, make you want to err on the side of caution and going slowly. But this was a different situation. We didn't have to worry about creating dependence. Like people couldn't work. It wasn't like, oh, if we give them this, they're not going to be motivated to work. They, right. they weren't allowed to work. They were literally going hungry. And so we didn't have to worry about the normal things that you would you know, try to, to go slowly on. We were able to kind of push in really quickly. And it was a huge benefit to all the people here, but it also um, really expanded the use and, and people's understanding of Bitcoin. They also had a ton of time on their hand because right. they couldn't do anything. So now they were more motivated to, okay, how does Bitcoin work and what's the basis Whoa, for this? The whole time. And so, yeah. So, uh, you know, of course, not saying everybody here right. understands it, but um, the majority, the vast majority of families here have, have used Bitcoin, you know, in some capacity and people understand it. And so it was, um, yeah, it kind of supercharged the adoption. So then, so I came back and there was like a team in place. There's a lot of things that were developing. You guys were developing an, like a specific wallet for this place and it picked up this name, Bitcoin Beach. Like what, what happened there? So we had a, um, a Lightning wallet. So Lightning is kind of a second layer protocol that um, the, the the Bitcoin protocol is kind of a, it's a very secure, but, but kind of slow um, way to transact. And so just like our financial system, we have Fedwire is at the, the base of it. And then you have all these things that are built on top of it, Visa, MasterCard, checking accounts. With Bitcoin, it's kind of, you know, a similar analogy. And so Lightning Network is a second layer protocol that basically transacts immediately. It's super fast, it's super cheap. A lot of the downsides of, of 
Bitcoin on the main chain are alleviated by using Lightning. And so we had a wallet company come to us and say, hey, we'll help you guys develop a specific wallet with all the specific things that you guys want to see. We just want the feedback and to see how people are actually using it because there's always a huge disconnect between the yes. computer programmers that oh, live yeah. in one world and, you know, especially here, people that are living in, you know, a, a shack with a dirt floor and... Who's buying you know, pupusas with their phone with a cryptocurrency. It's exactly. Wild. So, but there's, you know, things that the developer would think like, oh, well, this, everybody will understand this or why would they need that? But right. when you have people actually using it in the real world, there's different considerations. And so yep. they realized that. And so they wanted to see that. And they said, hey, we'll come down. They sent the, the head developers, spent a couple months here and was watching how people were using the wallet. And so it helped us develop a lot of things in this wallet that the community wanted and just made it... Um, a lot less friction in the way things were used. Fascinating. And that's when, so then there was a shift when El Salvador recognized the whole thing that was happening. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was all kind of a continuum. We started, we kept ramp, ramping up more and more. We were rolling out a number of different programs from educational initiatives where kids were getting stipends in Bitcoin if they got good grades oh, wow. to we we actually developed the country's first lifeguard program yeah. and so we had uh, dozens of lifeguards that were being paid salaries in Bitcoin and the government recently took over that program and expanded wow. it to the whole country so there was a number of steps kind of along the way but through this whole process we'd been you know, talking to the government as we, you know, as we were talking to the, the Minister of Tourism through the lifeguard program or yeah. through the Minister of, of Economy through the other initiatives we were doing, we kept mentioning to them that, hey, if El Salvador adopts Bitcoin, they'll have all these benefits that'll come in. It'll change the narrative about El Salvador from gangs and, and murders to this country that's leading the way in this new economic system. It'll bring a bunch of investment in as, oh, yeah. as Bitcoin companies that have a ton of wealth accruing to them as people are pushing in that space. They'll want to locate here. They'll want to hire people and provide wages that are much higher than people could make here otherwise. Yeah. And it'll really help put El Salvador on the map in a, in a number of different ways. And so we kept kind of pushing that in our meetings. And then in May, uh, or I think it was in April, I started hearing rumors yeah that something was coming and then in May at the Bitcoin conference in Miami they made the big announcement that they were adopting Bitcoin as, yeah. as legal tender. That was right after we were here last time. Yeah. Which is, and then, I mean, wild. Yeah, I mean it was, I mean I don't think anybody expected that. No. It was, we got, we're inundated with like press from around the world, um, literally just plane loads of executives and business leaders started flowing into the country. In Del Zante. In Del Zante, yeah. Because this I mean, is like was, the epicenter. It was something, it was really like something out of a movie. I mean, I talked to people, you know, heads of big companies that, you know, in my normal life, I would never be like sitting down with and yep. they're sharing that, you know, oh, I was on a flight somewhere else and heard the news and so at at our connection point we you know had a layover we changed our flight and flew directly to el salvador and no way. yeah just to just, come find out just crazy yeah one, one guy from uh who runs a um 
uh, some type of investment firm in Saudi Arabia. He was on vacation in Mexico and diverted his flight to, to El Salvador. You need to, to find out. Yeah, it was just like crazy, the, the, the influx of people from around the world, not just the U.S., I mean, from Asia, from Africa, from everywhere, like people kind of flocking to El Salvador. Okay, you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. Every time I've heard of cryptocurrency being discussed, it's like a, almost just a volatile investment where most of the people that I know that are investing into it, they're like, we're just going to throw it out there and see what happens. And we're not, you know, we're just going to cross our fingers. Um, but this is, this is a completely different thing. Like this is a shift into an actual currency. And it, but we really, we were talking about how it's a different kind of economy altogether. Could you, I don't think most people understand that and how that works. And, and you were even saying most people don't really understand how money works. Can you break that down again? Like maybe how money works, but then how crypto is different in that regard. So, I mean, money was developed, it just came throughout our history as a way to ease transactions. If you're just living in a barter community, you have to find somebody who, who has what you need and wants what you have. Yep. And so money has developed over time as this kind of intermediary that helps uh, you know, ease those friction points. So you don't need to actually have the exact same needs, but you can have this kind of neutral third party thing that you ascribe value to that you don't have to spend at that time, but can be passed on in the, in the future. And so money is, has been all kinds of different things throughout history. Um, and then in more recent history has moved more towards precious metals. And so gold and silver and, and those types of components. But as you look at money, especially as governments became involved in money and started minting, you know, initially it was coins, they would mint it at the value of the metal, but then they would start to debase it. They figured out like, wow, we can actually like make it stretch further if we add these other cheaper metals in. And so that, that's kind of the original money printing that we see now going on at the Federal Reserve where they just keep printing extra money when they want. And so that actually debases the currency and causes their, the currency to be worth less. And so you're always, and through history, you're always looking for something that can serve in, as money that is resistant to that, that's very hard to just make more of. And so that's what most people don't understand. They think like, I don't know what they think, we've always had the paper dollar, but even the dollar has gone through this transformation where originally it was just a representation for that amount of gold right. until we were taken off the gold standard in the 70s. And then it became something that you know they call fiat money. It just means it has value because the government says it has value. Um, but as we've seen, in the, in the US, especially more recently, but even more historically, you look at governments that those monies always fail because there's always this temptation to just print more of it. Because if you can have a free lunch, you want a free lunch. And it's right. a lot of times the, the price that has to be paid isn't seen immediately. And the people in office at that time know it's, you know, they'll be able to get away with it, but it'll be down the road that, right. that the, you know, everything has to kind of wash out. And so, with Bitcoin, it basically is the first time there's been a way to make a money that nobody can just make more of, that it can, you have a defined amount that there is, 
and nobody controls it and nobody can just artificially create it. So it's really the first fair money that we've seen in, in you know, decades um, since the fiat system was kind of embraced worldwide. And it also overcomes a lot of the downsides of, of using gold because with gold, it's hard to divide, it's hard to move, it's, you have, it's, it's um, you know, you have security issues, it's easy to steal. And so Bitcoin basically has all the good aspects of gold, but you can send, I mean, if I had it, I could send a billion dollars, you know, right now to somebody in Uganda and it could be there in, you know, 10 minutes and nobody could stop it and no security issues, nothing. And so with gold, obviously, if you're trying to send a billion dollars of gold, I mean, you have cargo planes, you have security issues, you have all that kind of stuff. And once it gets there and so with Bitcoin, it is basically a new form of money coming into place. And a lot of people think that, oh, it's a, you know, it's, it's some a speculative investment or you're, right. you're looking at it just to go up in dollar value. Yeah. What they don't realize is right now it's in the process of replacing the way we think about money that in 50 years, there will not be money as we know it today okay, that's controlled this. by government. Explain this more. Because we talked about it like a deinstitutionalization of the economy. So anytime the, the governments control the money, they're going to manipulate that to their advantage. They're going to use it to punish people that are against them. They're going to create more of it and, and have a stealth tax on their population rather than directly taxing them. If they just print more, they're they're really taxing everybody by devaluing the money that they have, but people don't feel it in the immediate. And so that's, for politicians, that's like, you cool. know, amazing because they're like, hey, we don't even have to tell them we're taxing them, but we can just print more and still spend and do the things we want. And, but ultimately everybody pays the price for that. And really it is the poor that um, are held behind in this. And we were talking about the other yeah. day, like you see in the US, you look at the housing market, how distorted the housing market is. And I mean, I see now sharing with you, like when I was growing up, we were like a very blue collar family, but we could afford like a house in, in San Clemente and a place that, um, you know, now even somebody making upper income wouldn't be able to afford that same house just right. because it's the values have gone up 20x while wages have, you know, maybe doubled. Right. And a big part of that is because people realize that the dollar is going down over time and they want to just park their money somewhere. And so instead of housing being paid for as a place to provide shelter, it's become this investment of, I'm going to buy a house just to park my money. Park my money yeah. Cause I know the value of housing will go up at least in line with how the value of money is going down. Right. And so that actually makes, housing more expensive for everybody because you have all these people that are using it as an investment and purchasing more home or additional homes that they're not using for housing but as investment which pushes the price up for everybody which is why you can't as a as a wage earner it's like almost impossible to buy a home in a place like california now it's extremely difficult especially the last two years and that's in those last two years, it's not a coincidence that it's been in those last two years because it's in those last two years that the government has been printing trillions of dollars and, you know, supposedly giving it free to everybody. But there's no there really isn't any free lunch. They've basically just been devaluing the currency. And so 
homes haven't really been going up in value. They've just, the dollar's been going down in value. So if you were to value your house in how many used cars your house is worth, it's gone down over the last year. Hmm. As used cars prices have gone up more than homes. Even if you value it in like going out for a meal at a restaurant, home prices have maybe stayed stable because it, the cost of everything's going up. So it's not even really that the value of homes are going up, it's just the value of dollars are going down. And people are pushing into, whether it's the stock market or a real estate market, anything they can do to get out of cash, they're going into those things. Right. And for a lot of people, they feel like, oh, that means I'm doing well. My house price is going up or my, my stock portfolio is going up. But really, if you kind of pull back from that, you see that that's not what's really happening. It's, it's that the dollar is going down in value. Even, even in Germany, um, in between the, the wars, as they started like seeing this hyperinflation, that, this inflation that was coming in, a lot of people thought they were doing well because their value of their homes were going up, everything was going up. And so we're seeing that same thing in the US now, if people feel like, oh, we're doing well because right. my assets are going up. And for the very wealthy who have lots of assets, that's true. They are richer, more wealthy, and, and have more privilege than they've ever had. But for the majority of the population that own very little assets, that don't have access, that don't really have much in the stock market, that, that are renters, like they keep falling further behind. Right. And it's creating this really world of haves and have nots. You were saying it's like a disadvantage to the poor. Like, how on the flip side does Bitcoin readjust those things or take that into account? So Bitcoin helps in, in a, like on several different levels. So on the base level, it allows these people that have been locked out of the banking system to the first time have access to just the efficiencies that come with being able to transact digitally. And why are they locked out of the banking system? So for, for a lot of them, the banks just won't open accounts for them because they're not, they're not worth it. They're not going to be profitable um, customers. The banks have a lot of regulation put on them with know your customer laws and anti-money laundering laws that really make it so that every customer they have is a monthly expense as they have to monitor all these different things. And so if that customer's not bringing in more than the cost, then the banks don't want them as a customer because they're just gonna lose money on them. Right. And so that puts, you know, especially in a place like El Salvador, that means the majority of the people are not gonna be wanted as customers because they're gonna cost the banks money, not, not make them money. So that's part of it. There's other, you know, especially in a place like El Salvador, there's there's people that just don't have the ID that that's needed. Right. Um, or for them, it's just not, it doesn't make sense. If they have to get on the bus for an hour to go to the bank to deposit money, and then when they need it, you know, later in the week, they have to get back on the bus to go there and right. wait in line and withdraw it. It really doesn't this serve that much purpose. Yeah. And, and they don't have a ton of money to, to store there anyways. And so for a lot of them, they wind up just not using the banks at all. Um, so that's on one level how it impacts things. But on a broader level, when you have something like Bitcoin where people can put their, that they don't want to take risk, they're not looking to invest or speculate, but they want to make sure that their, their money doesn't lose value over time. With Bitcoin, they can put it into that rather than buying a home as an investment. 
And so when they move into something as a store of value like Bitcoin rather than housing, that allows housing to go back to being housing rather than this speculative asset class, which allows prices of, of homes to readjust in line with wages, in line with what you should be paying for your housing needs, not right. not because, oh, I'm going to buy a house because it's going to go up in value over time and then I can sell it. Like, that's not what housing was meant to be, but that's what it's become. Oh, yeah. And so there's a shift with the Bitcoin or with cryptocurrency generally from a strange investment to a new form of currency that, like you were saying, it's like a deinstitutionalization. Like, how does it operate then outside of gover government restrictions? Bitcoin's the first kind of really truly decentralized money or even kind of messaging system of, that's outside the government control. So it's run on literally like hundreds of thousands of, of computers around the world. There's no way to shut it down. There's no president of Bitcoin. There's no Bitcoin office. There's, I, I heard a lawyer the other day say that he was a, a Bitcoiner, but he said he was in a, this group meeting and somebody's like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to subpoena the president of Bitcoin, but we can't. Can't find we him. can't find them and and he was just kind of laughing because people don't understand that where we've been we've always like thought that there's always a head of something there always has to be something that controls something but with bitcoin it's, it's not that way like it doesn't matter you could shut a whole country down and you could exclude that country from accessing it if they don't have internet and if you totally cut them off but that doesn't affect the rest of the network around the world and so that's what um that's the beauty of Bitcoin is you can't force anybody to, you can't create more of it, but you also can't like kick anybody off of it. You can't prohibit people from using it. You can't target your enemies and, and you know, try to put sanctions on companies to stop them from using it. It's tr truly free and decentralized. So we were talking about this. I feel like there's a bigger deinstitutionalization, decentralizing happening not just an economy, but I was telling you, I feel like it's almost like a reformation era shift where we've talked a lot about this on our podcast where there's like a deinstitutionalization happening in spirituality as well, where people are stepping out of the institutions of church. There's a lot of people percentage wise that are, but not because they're losing faith, but because they feel like in order to keep going, it's like that particular container doesn't work anymore. And they're saying if that form doesn't work, then we're gonna keep going in our faith. And there's a new form that's essentially emerging, but nobody knows what it is. So it feels, there's all these language that they, they, they use like, um, uh, gosh, I'm blanking right now. There's a huge like, culture battle within Christianity, um, deconstruction, deconstruction Christianity, and some guy declared war on deconstruction Christianity, which is silly. Um, it's just people going, I don't think that, that, can, that form or container for this thing works anymore, but for the spirit to keep going and truly embody this movement of Jesus, of like the spirit, yeah. it, it's got to take on some new form. And so it's like people step out into the unknown and there's a lot of fear in it. But I mean, it, like that's what happened in the Reformation. But in that, like everything was shifting simultaneously, like the like spirituality, the economy, literacy, eventually government, eventually the nation state, eventually like capitalism, everything came out of that the enlightenment, like everything came yeah. out of that shift. Yeah. But I mean, do you sense that this is a part of something like that? I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. 
No, 100%. I mean, I think that we're moving away from that kind of like top-down um, centralization of authority and control to more dispersed. And I think you're going to see that play out in a lot of ways. But you're also going to see there's going to be a battle. There's people yeah. that that have a lot to lose. They're, they're vested in the current system. And so, and even some of them in the long run, they'll be better off. They, they're like short-sighted and seeing like some of the downsides that might come immediately versus the, the long term of how this is going to shift. But I mean, like any, any big shift through it that we've seen, I mean, you can't stop them. They, they're going to happen regardless. I mean, it's like trying to hold back a wave in the ocean. Like yeah. you either like ride that wave or you get knocked over by it. And so <laughs> I think that it really doesn't matter what people do on the individual levels. I think this is going to be, you know, this is like a bigger thing that's going to shift things. And nobody knows exactly how it's all okay. going to shake out. You were in saying 50 years from now, money's going to be different. Like, what do you, obviously nobody knows, but like, what are you sensing is happening? Because you're, you were at the epicenter of like the crypto first, like functioning economy and currency. I mean, what are you seeing? What do you think? So I think that, I mean, Bitcoin is, is for sure going to play like a huge central role. Um, I think that we're still open to see if we'll have, you know, a few other currencies that happen alongside of it. But I think what we'll see first is a lot of the smaller currencies are going to go away. Um, governments are going to realize they can no longer force people to use this currency that they just keep inflating. And I think you're actually going to see both a dollarization and a Bitcoinization. I think as the digital dollar rolls out and there's more forms that people can get access to a digital dollar. You're going to have that alongside of Bitcoin, which is going to be more volatile as it becomes the money. Anytime you have something that comes from, you know, a low point of value to basically encompassing the majority of the value in the world, it's, it's going to be a rocky ride. There's going to be volatility along the way. And so there will be people who will embrace the digital dollar as their day-to-day -day, like spending money but then their long-term money realizing they want it in bitcoin because that's going to be what continues to hold its value longer term with the volatility with the ups and downs right. and so um i don't know if in 50 years if, if the dollar will be gone and everybody will be just using bitcoin or if we'll be using bitcoin and that's what central banks are holding as their kind of core assets but they're still the dollar and the euro and the yen and you know maybe maybe a couple others but i think we're going to see all the smaller currencies go away for sure and i think there is a good chance longer term that it will move specifically to bitcoin but i don't know if that's 20 years or 100 years um, because it's it's a fair system. The system we have now, the U.S. controls it. There's a lot of advantages that accrue to the U.S., but those are disadvantages that, to the rest of the world. And so as the world realizes they don't have to continue in this, that they can opt out of it, it at some point will f force the U.S. to you know, acknowledge that and to either be left behind or to you know, become part of that. Typically, people that benefit from the current form and system fight pretty vehemently to hang on to it. I mean, the, the last reformation was quite volatile for a long time. And then eventually there was a counter-reformation and everybody came along. Yeah, and I think, I think we'll see the same. And I think, I mean, 
you also will see even within like bigger groups, there will be some people who perceive there being more benefit and some people being seen there's more risk. So you're already seeing in the US, uh, the banks and the existing institutions are on one hand like fighting Bitcoin and trying to yeah. keep it and put more regulations on it. On the other hand, they're like starting to invest in it and, and becoming highly involved because they realize, well, hey, this is probably going to take over. So we don't want to be left behind. We want to we want to keep our advantage as long as possible. Changing but bets yeah. on both sides. And so I think you're going to see as the, the general population starts to and they're already starting to realize, especially with the inflation we're seeing now, they're realizing, hey, this system is like really stacked against us like i've been getting wage increases for the last 20 years but i'm actually worse off than my parents were yeah and i feel yeah. like i'm just always falling behind and they realize that that's by design that's because of the way the current system is set up and so even as americans and having the reserve currency for the majority of americans they're not benefiting from this they're actually falling behind and it's the you know the top 10 percent that own all the assets they're the ones that are benefiting and so i think like you're going to see yep every time so i think you're already seeing those fault lines and i think that's why you see populism kind of rising up around the world because there's this sense of like it's not fair like this is like not working for us so it doesn't just benefit the poor or the poorest of the poor benefits everyone essentially i mean you're describing it like a revolution no, it will be a revolution. I mean, it is a revolution. I think they'll they'll look back in the history books and and you know we'll say like, oh, this started ten years ago. Right now, it feels like oh, people, oh, it's just right. a fad or it's no. it's just this speculation or it's. But it's if people look at his, history, even it, it, it cracks me up when people call Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme because Ponzi schemes don't like recover and go higher and recover and go higher. Like right. usually when they're outed as a Ponzi scheme, scheme they, they crash and they fall. But revolutions do go through these bubble periods. And so you see like the railroads, they went through this bubble, it got speculative and then it crashed. Right. And then it went through another growth period, but it didn't mean the railroads still weren't driving this big revolution and making travel accessible for the first time for average people and bringing all this benefit. Right. It just meant that sometime the, sometimes the speculation got ahead of what was actually being able to be produced by this new technology. Same thing with energy, same thing with, with the internet. Yeah. You know, there oh, was yeah. people in two, 2000 that said, ah, oh, see, we told you this was a fad and, and all this money was just destroyed and, and the internet's never gonna be anything. Well, obviously now we look back and realize that was just a little blip. You know, it got a little ahead of itself. It had a blip and then it had a yeah. building period. And so time. you're going to see those same type of cycles with Bitcoin, but you never see that with a Ponzi scheme. If it's a Ponzi scheme, once it crashes, it crashes. Like it doesn't recover again and go to all time highs. And so that's what people are. And it doesn't go on for, you know, years and years and through right. these different cycles. And so that's what people are m missing. They're missing the network effect of something that keeps like doubling the number of users. I think with Bitcoin, it's like every two years. And if you know anything about exponential growth, you know that once that gets started, like it, it gets crazy as you project out 10 years, like the difference yeah. that that'll make. Well, and I mean, just the Super Bowl commercials alone, it's wild how many cryptocurrency get this wallet invested this way. Like it, that, I mean, there's a cultural shift that that would not have happened two years ago. 
No, there's a cultural shift, and I think, you know, especially in the younger generations, this makes more sense. I mean, just from a practical level, like, really, we're doing paper money that, I mean, still, to do a transaction in the, the financial system now, I mean, for example, if I want to buy a property here in El Salvador, for me to wire money from the U.S., it takes at least a week to yeah. get it here. And that's it, you know, if it doesn't get held up in right, all these different departments. Totally. And so, where you saw the other day, we had those, the we people watched. were buying property here and they yep. literally just sent it and they had was, that, okay. while the they were signing the papers, they, they sent that money and, and they had it. They're it's physically Australian, holding it. There's a lawyer, there's a guy who had property and then there is this Australian guy who wanted to buy this property and he opened his laptop scanned a QR code, hit a button, and it just whoop. Yep. And then they signed, and that was it. And if he was trying to like wire that from, from Australia, Australia to El Salvador, I mean, I don't even know if it would have been like possible to 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 do. And wild. so it's you see, like, so on a practical level, it just makes so much more sense. It was wild. Just from usability. It was a thing. Um, and then to, to go down the street and use your phone and buy pupusas yeah. for seventy-five cents in Bitcoin is is wild. So it's, it has there is a, a huge, revolution. Yeah. There's a huge practical aspect of the usability, but then there's also the first time of having like money that you can store and not worry about the government stealing it from you through inflation. So it, it, it is a wild revolution. How exciting. Oh, it's been and weird and I don't fully get it, but this has been really helpful. Um, okay, we ask everybody at the end of our conversations in this season, what's, so it's, it's a little different here because it's typically what's one practical thing that our listeners can do to make change in the world based on what you're seeing. And so obviously this is such a big revolutionary thing, but um, maybe there's two layers. Maybe there's what's one thing people could do in light of this, but maybe it's actually to make change and help the people of El Salvador. I, I think people underestimate how big a role our monetary system plays into all these other things, poverty, crime, all these things that as, as Christians we feel passionate about. So I would encourage people to explore Bitcoin. There's, there's two books I'd recommend. Uh, one is the Bitcoin Standard. Uh, the other is Thank God for Bitcoin, which is written from kind of a Christian perspective of, of how Bitcoin is fair money and why that is so important for us to have. Um, and then for people to start really thinking about where this is gonna go, we're already seeing you know, directions that people are trying to clamp down. We saw recently in Canada as people are freezing people's accounts and like going after and government wanting to control people's money. And we can extrapolate that out to what that's gonna look like for the church as the church, um, you know, isn't in line with what the government thinks should be our, our values, where that could go in the U.S. And for us to realize things are changing so quickly that we should just at least be aware of how these things all interact with each other so that we're not caught by surprise. And, and I think in general there's been um, people in the church have had negative connotations of Bitcoin. Oh, it's used for, for drugs or money laundering and, and all these things that people that don't want to see it succeed, keep trying to perpetuate. So I think for people to just investigate a little bit and really understand a little bit both how our current monetary system works, but also the, the problems that Bitcoin solves in that. And, and just for them to be aware of that. That's really cool. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and have this conversation. Yeah, glad you're here in El Salvador. Thanks, my friend.
Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website, philandjenwood.com, to register for upcoming experiences and to see what else is going on. And if you enjoyed this, feel free to subscribe. You can even leave a review. Keep going. See you next time.